0: Welcome to New Books in Africa Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Andrew Miller of the U.S. Naval Academy, and today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth King to discuss her book co-authored with Cyrus Sammy, Diversity, Violence, and Recognition, How Recognizing Ethnic Identity Promotes Peace. Uh, This book is the first study to systematically map when states recognize ethnic groups and it provides a novel theory to explain recognition's effects on peace. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Andrew, and for engaging with this work.
0: I want to start with the book's origin story, so to speak. Uh, So where did the idea come from and how did it ultimately come into fruition?
1: A great place to start. More than 10 years ago now, I was a postdoc at Columbia University, finishing up a study on Rwanda. My terrific co-author Cyrus Sammy was finishing his PhD, which was a study of Burundi. And as you know, these are two countries side by side in Central Africa. Despite the similarities we see between these two countries in terms of ethnic makeup, economic conditions, histories of violence... The leaders of these two countries made diametrically opposed choices after violence along ethnic lines. Where in Rwanda, references to ethnicity were banned, except in genocide commemoration. And in Burundi, in contrast, there were ethnic quotas in a number of sectors. And complicating things even more, each country had the other's strategy prior to mass violence along ethnic lines. So over tea and coffee in the basement of a building at Columbia University, we wondered about the effectiveness of ethnic quotas. Then the project got bigger, because before we could answer the question about the effects of ethnic quotas, we had to go back to their origins, that is, the conditions that brought them about, because we didn't want to mix these things up analytically. And then we realized, well, it's not just ethnic quotas, but we have the opportunity to think about a set of policy options that might follow the same strategic logic and answer a higher order question about conflict management strategies in diverse contexts. I don't really remember when we said, this isn't an article or a series of articles, but a fulsome book, but I am so grateful that this is the direction we went because it gave us a lot more space physically, but moreover intellectually to explore these ideas. And personally, having focused on writing articles in recent years, I also got to remember that I really love researching and writing books.
0: Could you could you describe the book's kind of main theory for us? Like, when do states explicitly recognize ethnic groups and what effect does that recognition have on peace?
1: Sure. Thanks, Andrew. Conceptually, first of all, by recognition, we mean explicit and formal use of ethnic identities as a way to acknowledge diversity or define group-based rights like quotas. So we developed a theory that was based on two sets of effects, assuring effects and mobilization effects. And these play out differently based on what we call the ethnic power configuration. That is the leaders ethnic groups share of the population. So let me unpack each of these three key terms a little more and how they relate to one another. First, we have this assuring effect, and that is that there's value in recognizing ethnic groups. It may be symbolically important. It may be important in conveying information that is allowing people to see how their group is faring, guarding against tyranny of the majority. And... uh, In recognizing ethnic groups, it may also lead to group differentiated rights, as it often does with the idea that past disadvantages or injustices are not self-correcting. So we have these assuring effects. In contrast, we also have what we call the mobilization of effects. And those come from the fact that ethnic recognition licenses and potentially facilitates mass mobilization along ethnic lines, really from voting to violence. And of course, these are stylized facts. We theorize, though, that these two sets of effects work differently under different ethnic power configurations. That is, their leader's interest in recognition depends on whether these two effects work together to secure their political position or undermine it. So thinking about the ethnic power configuration, if you are a leader from a plurality or majority group, these two effects work together to secure your position. But if you're a leader of a minority, sorry, a leader from the country's minority group, one of the minority groups, these effects clash. So the assuring effect is helpful in reducing conflict. But on the other hand, the mobilization effect puts you at a structural disadvantage. So these types of leaders have a dilemma of recognition.
0: Digging into that idea of a mobilization a little bit more, like what does ethnic mobilization look like on the ground? So like, how do I know when I'm seeing and observing ethnic mobilization?
1: Yeah, thank you. So when we talk about ethnic mobilization, we're thinking of the work of ethnic entrepreneurs. I said, you know, voting to violence or anything in between that relies on reference to ethnic identity and ethnic group cohesion, So one could imagine electoral rhetoric, for instance, saying a given party that they're trying to advance the interests of a particular group or protecting the group or pursuing power for the sake of the group. It's to us mobilization that calls on an ethnic us. Now, if you'll allow me just to go back for a quick moment, because you asked me not only about the adoption of recognition, but then also the effects. And we do think that these two Effects theoretically, the assuring effects and the mobilization effects that you just asked about also impact the likelihood of positive pro-peace outcomes from a recognition approach. So, you know, along similar lines to what we theorize in terms of the adoption of recognition, we think that things should go more smoothly, that is, recognition should contribute to peace under plurality or majority ethnic leadership. But under minority ethnic leadership, leaders might take actions to mitigate these risks of mobilization, and those actions may run counter to peace.
0: Now, how did you go about testing the theory, testing these two kind of different dependent variables, both uh, when states engage in this ethnic recognition and then whether or not this ethnic recognition promotes peace?
1: Cyrus and I adopted a mixed methods approach, which I believe you also do in some of your work. First, with the help of talented RAs, we coded constitutions and comprehensive peace agreements for the presence or the absence of recognition. And we were looking at conflicts ending between 1990 and 2012. Then we also um, created what we called our implementation data set, which was a huge effort examining de jure and de facto recognition across seven domains, really ranging from the executive to language, for example. And this was because often in our early presentations on the project, we received to the questions to the effect of, well, sure, it says so-and-so in the constitution or peace agreement, but what about on the ground? And so with these two novel data sets, we conducted cross-national quantitative analysis of 57 countries, 86 constitutional moments. And we found that, per our theory, when a leader is from the largest ethnic group, recognition is adopted 60% of the time. But when a leader is from a minority group, it's less than a quarter of the time. We also found that countries that adopt recognition after violent conflict are more inclusive, experience less political violence. Have stronger democracy ratings and increased economic vitality. But you also asked me just about testing the theory. So let me add that we also conducted in depth qualitative case studies of Rwanda, Burundi, and Ethiopia. Rwanda and Burundi as case choices conform to our theoretical expectations vis a vis adoption. That is, Burundi adopted recognition under plurality rule and Rwanda under minority rule did not, and each did the opposite when their ethnic power configuration was the opposite. So we had these two really well-predicted cases where Cyrus and I had worked previously. We also, though, investigated Ethiopia, which did not conform to our theoretical expectations. This was a minority regime that in the early 1990s adopted ethnic recognition in the form of ethnic federalism, which was a really extreme form of recognition. So this allowed us to think more about what happens when a minority adopts recognition. And the short story is through these case studies, we developed ideas of the paradox of recognition, wherein recognition can actually dampen the salience of ethnicity, and the paradox of non-recognition, wherein non-recognition can heighten the salience of ethnicity, which are both somewhat counterintuitive, but what we observe in the cases of Burundi and Rwanda, respectively.
0: That's interesting. I definitely want to dig a little bit deeper into that case of non-recognition, in particular Rwanda, just because the results seem somewhat somewhat counterintuitive. But before I do, um, if we could talk a little bit more about the difference between kind of these formal recognition mechanisms that you studied in the book and informal mechanisms of, of, of uh, recognition that, that seem to be uh, prevalent in, in some African contexts at least, right? So when I say informal mechanism mechanisms of recognition, I have in mind systems like uh, Nigeria's presidential zoning practices, where you would have political parties rotate the region where their presidential candidates come from. So how common are these formal recognition mechanisms relative to these informal mechanisms did you find in your research? And should we expect like similar effects for informal recognition that we have for the formal recognition that, that you tested in the study?
1: This is a good question, and I appreciate it because we got different variants of it many different times sort of early when we're presenting on the book. So it, it prompted us sort of about halfway through the decade or so that it took us to research and write this book to create that implementation data set that I mentioned a little bit earlier. So in this data set, we looked at de jure versus de facto recognition, And when we were looking, we looked across seven domains. So here it was where we went beyond our central coding in constitutions and peace agreements to look at legislation as it affected the executive, the legislative, the judiciary, civil service, military, education, and language. And then we also looked at others who had coded informal recognition and usefully built upon their work. And what we found was really a lot of concurrence between The constitutional or uh, peace agreement recognition and de facto recognition. So it's imperfect, but there was enough overlap that we felt comfortable with proceeding with the concept of formal ethnic recognition, knowing that it had this significant overlap with implementation. But now, that said, there are, of course, cases where there is only informal rather than formal recognition, and some lesser, I think, vice versa. So we conscientiously prioritized formal recognition because we thought of these constitutional moments as having something special, representing some kind of more permanent commitment to principles. Now it might be a matter of degree, but we thought there's likely a higher level of commitment among stakeholders to something that's formally institutionalized versus an informal expectation. And we reasoned that it's probably more durable when it's formalized.
0: Is there a lot, do you find a lot of cases where there is um, recognition, but then that that recognition gets pulled back by subsequent regimes that come into power? And I'd be curious what kind of implications that has when you have um, the rescinding of a recognition that that happened previously.
1: Yeah, thank you. I would have to look back at the book to look at the specifics. I don't think that there's a lot of cases within the 1990 to 2012 conflict-ending case set that we had, although you do see, of course, that if we had 57 countries and 86 constitutional moments, there were, in several countries, more than one such constitutional moment. Sometimes that trended in the same direction, you know, both for recognition or in other times, both non-recognition. If I'm not mistaken, there were a couple cases where there was change but, but this is a, a bigger question, right, in the recognition literature or, or literature on affirmative action or quotas to think about what some people call sunset clauses. Uh, and we're yeah. very interested in thinking more in the future about change uh, and regime change, policy change. Uh, and, and we do see that certainly in, in the cases in our book, right? Rwanda, Burundi and Ethiopia all experienced Change over time,
0: right? And and on that Rwanda case, it's particularly interesting, I think, because as you mentioned, there's kind of this explicit non-recognition and very stringent policies related to that, which the regime justifies, you know, in part by pointing to the uh, the 1994 genocide. Um, but like as you demonstrate quite convincingly, I'd say, ethnic politics remain. Very much alive in the country, kind of under the surface. So, as a start, like, why does why does ethnic politics still remain so salient there, despite um, these what appear to be kind of de jure efforts to um, limit any sort of ethnic recognition there?
1: Uh, th- thanks for the the question. I think the most generous interpretation of the logic under Kagami, the current president of Rwanda, is that ethnic non-recognition will do away with ethnicity in everyday life and bring Rwandans together under a collective Rwandan identity. And he's pairing that with a focus on economic growth. Uh, but as you point out, one problem here goes back to our conversation about what's the law and policy versus implementation And while the the law, the policy is very much one of non-recognition, it's our understanding from my previous work there already long ago, but moreover, excellent recent scholarship, that daily life in Rwanda continues to tell Rwandans that ethnicity matters. So the the less generous interpretation of the logic under Kagame is that he and his government are using non-recognition in a way to maintain power that is hiding how much the minority holds in the state and, and using this, this non-recognition also to legitimize their hold on power, that it's necessary to do so because ethnic mobilization and another genocide could happen at any time. So you know while we, while we focus on recognition, we're also interested in learning more, as I've said, about these long-run effects here of, of non-recognition And psychologically, we all have multiple identities and identities that we are drawn to can change. So it's not impossible that a superordinate identity override or coexist with ethnic identity. And it's only been just over 25 years since the Rwandan genocide. But I I think we left this project skeptical that this non-recognition Policy paired with the fact that the lived reality still means that ethnicity matters, and that's just below the surface, um, really gives us questions as to as to whether um, this could happen.
0: So, so it sounds like there's some questions about the like long run durability of this policy. Do you think it? Um do you get a sense of like, is it is it broadly popular in the country? Um, and if so, does that mean it could potentially survive in a post-Kagami era where we'll continue to see this very stringent non-recognition policy? Or do you see this as something that will p- potentially most likely get, get lifted um, and there'll be a little bit more of a kind of liberalization on, on this front? I know that's hard to say, you know, you know, decisively one way or the other. Um, but I'd uh, just be curious to to get your thoughts on, on that, you know, considering your, your in-depth research in the context.
1: Yeah, those are hard questions, Andrew. Like, what does a <laughs> post-Kagami era look like? How did the transition happen? When does it happen? You know, for, for our work here, what does the ethnic power configuration look like after the transition? You know, to your your question, do we think that this is broadly popular? You know, I I remember years ago talking to someone who worked at Afrobarometer, who talked about why it was not possible to run Afrobarometer survey in Rwanda, being that people were simply not free to express their opinions. So we relied a lot on really in-depth qualitative work in thinking about the chapter on Rwanda, and so it's. You know, our assessment that people have talked about the policy as popular because they can't not. And when they have the opportunity to deviate from this public discourse, the public transcript to share more private experiences, they share experiences that speak to them about ethnicity absolutely still still mattering. So, uh, you know, in short, I don't know the answer to your question, uh, and, and I suspect what the transition looks like will have a lot to do with uh, what the, the shape of the new government looks like. Is it a, another minority leader? Because if it's a minority leader, it's not so easy to say that they should switch to recognition as the current situation would become increasingly clear and the majority Hutus may seek to overthrow the regime. But if it were a plurality leader they might be able to learn from the lesson in Burundi where the majority Hutu led government adopted recognition and actually overweighted quotas for Tutsis in an effort to assure that is they got about 40% in most quotas while their numerical representation in the population is something closer to to 15% So all that to say, you know, the structure of each country looks differently. And when people ask us questions about the specifics of a country's trajectory, I think one of the things that we can do is look to what other cases are structurally similar in terms of ethnic power configuration and what lessons might we learn from that historical record.
0: Great. So moving, moving north to Ethiopia, another Major case in in the book. Um, we're aware there's been uh, recent ethic tensions that are spilled over into into conflict uh, in that in that context. Um, so this potentially provides an opportunity to, I guess, extend your case uh, to future years and kind of apply your theory to the case um, as it stands today. So how might we apply your theory to help us understand? What's happening in Ethiopia uh, with respect uh, to uh, the Tigrays, et cetera, um, and the the various uh, dimensions of the of the ethnic uh, conflict there?
1: Yeah, thank you. We're following Ethiopia with great interest. Of course, primarily concerned for Ethiopians who are living through the violence, and secondarily, as you note, I think it is a challenge to think about for our analysis and and the pathway forward and what we can learn. I noted already that in the book, Ethiopia is sort of our anomalous case in that the TPLF minority regime adopted recognition. It was the leader in the EPRDF coalition, but it did so in contrast to the much more common global practice of pluralities adopting and minorities avoiding recognition. So when we were writing the book, we talked about an institutional mismatch between the ethnic power configuration and the decision or the trend in the decision to recognize or not. And in that in itself, one of the things that the Ethiopia case helped us see more vividly, and that actually came up as a scope condition in our quantitative analysis, was the importance of ethnic fractionalization. Our cross-national findings do hold less clearly in context with high ethnic fractionalization like Ethiopia, where there's more than 80 different groups. And we see that the starkness of the difference between the plurality or the majority and the minority is is less clear. But this case certainly kept us on our toes because just before the book went to press, Abiy from the plurality ethnic group came to power. So essentially remedying what we saw theoretically as an institutional mismatch And in the broader book, we see positive effects of recognition being driven when recognition is adopted in context of plurality, ethnic rule. But of course, Abiy inherited the regime. He didn't himself adopt it. And so we made some changes to try to to think about these, these current events. And then since the book went to press, there's been the outbreak of violence in Ethiopia and one key feature of Abi's new Prosperity Party is to dissolve the ethnically-based regional parties that constituted the EPRDF. So this is not a full removal of ethnic recognition in all of its facets, not by any means. And I know in a previous question, you were asking you know, about change over time. But this is an important change in sort of the, the center of power and, and how they thought about um, ethnic groups and violence has ensued. So not so much an answer as to say that I think the the case prompts us to ask at least three big questions going forward. And one is about change, change in leadership, change in the, the content of recognition. The second question is one we've already discussed too, is to think about the effects of recognition in the longer term. So our book can really only get at the short to medium run effects. And then the, the third question it's one we've been thinking about a lot are really different ways that recognition works. So in our conclusion, for instance, we talk about how recognition might serve to integrate like in Burundian um, in the quota system, or it might serve to separate groups, which is more what we see under Ethiopian ethnic federalism. And so we think it might be useful to do more to split up ethnic recognition into these two pathways. And our thoughts have certainly been, been influenced by Ethiopia there. I should also just mention before closing out on Ethiopia that, you know of course, we'll continue to follow it closely. Cyrus and I created a website that includes a blog for our book where we engage with work and ideas on the question of recognition and its effects. And there's a really insightful blog posting by Hilary Matfis from the University of Denver that's focused on Ethiopia.
0: Great. We'll uh, we'll include a link to, to that site in the podcast description. So for any listeners who want to check it out, they can uh, easily easily go there. So now, moving over across the Atlantic, uh, closer to home here in the U.S., um, there appears to be increased tension among racial groups in in the United States, um, and some would say that in in a way that's preferred to how it was before when that sort of tension was latent and under the surface, uh, instead of having it kind of out there um, as it is, or as it appears to be increasingly so at the moment. Um, So I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts based on your experience, your work uh, elsewhere, um, what what your theory might say about the increased uh, tension among among racial groups in in the United States and and the implications of having that uh, tension much more uh, present and, and visible than than it was, say, maybe even a decade, uh, two decades ago.
1: Right. This is an important question. Now, our book focuses on contexts that have been affected by large scale violent conflict, and it tells us surprisingly clearly that on average, recognition leads to both negative peace and positive peace outcomes, at least in plurality-led regimes. Now, while we don't study the US yet, uh, we write briefly in the conclusion about how the lens of our theory may help to uncover important dimensions of political conflicts over ethnic and racial inequality in North America and Europe. And I think there is a growing awareness. There's there's a lot to gain from bridging the analytical divisions between the context that we include in our book, which are really based on these prominent codings and data sets of conflicts, and a wider set of cases, like you've asked about in this question. Now, in more direct uh, and brief uh, answer to your question, our intuition is that open discourse on the basis of identity in this context is preferable. And we consider conversations about things like group-based reparations or affirmative action important forms of, of recognition. Now, since we don't yet study the U.S. case, I mentioned the book's website, we are eager to learn more from colleagues about the U.S. And we have a great post by our NYU colleague, Anna Harvey and Taylor Madia, who are now at the University of Pennsylvania, they write about a type of situation in the U.S. that resembles what we discuss in the book. They focus on minority group victimization in policing and affirmative action addressing those types of processes. So I encourage li- listeners to have a look at the blog. Thank you for for offering to post the link so that they can they can continue to engage on this U.S. question. Excellent.
0: All right. Well, uh, to... Kind of round things out. I want to turn to just talking a little bit about the research process, the writing process for this book. Uh, for any listeners who are, um, you know, working on working on their first book, who are in the process of of writing a book, uh, just to give them a little bit of sense of uh, how it can be done uh, successfully. So, to start that, uh, were there any unexpected challenges with writing this book uh, that came up?
1: Uh, First, I really appreciate that you're asking questions about the process as well as the methods and the substance. And it gave us a nice chance to really reflect on the process. Um, Unexpected challenges, probably just that this became a bigger and a bigger project. Recall my answer to your first question about how the project started, that this was a conversation over tea and coffee that was like, we should write an article about that. That was then, we need an article before that article and on and on. So it's not a, a challenge in the sense of a problem, but it's not like we knew this was a book or that we knew what it was going to look like at the beginning. And actually, we were really surprised that the results of our analysis spoke rather clearly uh, and that, that it came together so nicely as a book.
0: And what what was that day-to-day process for writing and and researching the book. So Tyler Cowen talks about a production function, like how people get things done. Um, How how did that work for for you and Cyrus?
1: For us, I think it was really about talking and meeting regularly. We very much co-authored this as a team. We did not split the book and meet up it was very collaborative, even to the sense that concretely, for several years, we had a three hour, three hour plus standing block in our calendars every week where we physically work together often, but not always on the same task we, we discussed. And that was so productive and positive that we still meet for an hour a week now to flesh out these, these next ideas but as for the, the production function, I guess in addition to, to that, I would I would add the cliche that it takes a village and we drew on it because we got so much done through feedback and conversation, not only between the two of us, but we presented each piece of the argument, breaking it down into presentations. Really a quick side tip would be that we found that making slides really illuminated what our argument for each piece was, how to mm-hmm. articulate it pithily, what was missing and then we presented to each other, to our RAs, to broader audiences at universities, pieces at conferences. We were fortunate to have an amazing book workshop, a second mini one. And I even remember one ISA presentation that was focused exclusively on the ethnic recognition concept, the definition, to check, you know, did it make sense? Did it resonate with people? So feedback, conversation, and then even this conversation is part of that. So our future work thanks you.
0: Mm. So what would be that, if you were to boil it down to that kind of one most most important piece of advice for uh, authors writing a book, what would that be? And in particular, what might be that advice for authors who are co-authoring uh, books, uh, books together?
1: Great. I think I, think I would say two, two pieces. So just in terms of advice for researching and writing a book. Cyrus and I talked about this and I I think it's really, don't hide it until it's perfect. We are so grateful to have so many people who are smart and generous look at this and this highly interactive approach really worked for us. In terms of co-authoring, I think here it's something we don't think a lot about, but you can't just like each other and respect each other or even have an interest in the same topic, but all those things are important of course. But also it has to be the more mundane, that there's compatibility in work styles and an agreement on how we're going to work together. I think that's been really key to our our partnership, which decades long, oh my, I'm going to have to say switch to 15 years soon, but you know, something that we really (laughs) continue to build on.
0: Great. Um, Okay. So if we were to expand this out to the discipline more broadly, if you will. If you could wave a magic wand, change one thing about how research is done, and we'll say comparative politics, but you know you can apply this more broadly to political science, social science, um, what would that be? What would be that one thing uh, that you would uh, uh, change?
1: I'll give you both answers. Cyrus, unfortunately, as you know, was unable to join us today. So his, mm. his answer was to get people to think about the pace of production as slower. He said, what if we mm. can imagine you know, one paper every two years? Uh, and that is just not the way that the discipline is going right now.
0: Mm. You know,
1: it took to that. It took us like 10 years to write and research this book. You know, of course, we were also doing other things. Um, for for my part, I would say, this is going to sound cheesy with a book focused on recognition and inclusion, but I'm going to go for it anyway. <laughs> it, it would be recognition and inclusion in the discipline. So of different perspectives, approaches, methodologies, people, backgrounds, and of course, we don't have a wand, so we need to work on those things.
0: Absolutely. Now, if we were to look at this specific topic of violence, uh, ethnic, uh, ethnically-oriented studies, if you will, like, what do you see as the next frontier? What do you see as kind of these important questions that uh, still need to be asked in that area?
1: There's a lot of evidence now that we can't ignore group-based inequalities And establishing that really took a tremendous amount of work in studies of ethnically organized violence. We were delighted, for instance, to welcome the University of Oxford's Francis Stewart to our blog for an interview about horizontal inequalities and their their ongoing relevance. So I think if we accept that as as the state of the field, what do we do next? A lot of it is about strategies. So some of those are institutional strategies like our book, And there's a great forthcoming book by Cederman, Hoog, and Wooperfinnich. It could be about group-based interventions and how they affect attitudes and behaviors. I've recently been reading work uh, that Salma Musa and colleagues have done in efforts to address group-based inequalities. Another piece would maybe be about perceptions and emotions in assessing the effectiveness of strategies. I have a terrific student, Emily Dunlop, who's just about to finish her dissertation on efforts to address horizontal educational inequalities in Burundi, and the importance of perceptions alongside objective changes happening on the ground. I'm hoping that that she'll write a blog posting soon so I think all this is part of that, that next frontier. And the other thing, the, the last thing here would just be to say that I think crossing disciplines is going to be key so that we can't stay squarely within what might have been considered traditional political science, but also broadening to think about social psychology, education, for instance.
0: Hmm. You, you know, we're just on an audio feed here, so you can't see me, but I'm, I'm nodding my head uh, quite a bit. Um, oh, so finally, what are you working on now? what can we look what can we look forward to next uh, from from you in terms of your scholarship
1: well thank you for the head nodding i wish we were together <laughs> right the world is going to be such again soon i hope but but this soon, proliferation yeah. of podcasts and conversations has been so very very productive so really you know in talking about this book including through conversations like this we have a host of next questions that we're excited to be working on many of which i've alluded to already When we were talking about Ethiopia, for instance, I talked about recognition approaches that divide versus integrate and bring people together. In that vein, we're slowly accumulating ideas and insights on the application of those concepts, and we aim to put our ideas to the test in an an article soon-ish. When we talked about Rwanda, we talked about recognition in this longer time period So there are a number of cases that we might be able to learn from a much longer historical record. As a Canadian, for instance, that's an interesting question to explore over centuries. Uh, And then you and I also talked about this idea of broader context. I think that that's crucial. And so expanding our theory and our empirics to a broader set of cases is an important next step for us. So we are, if I dare say it, beginning to think about a next book together on these issues. Mm. And then the other thing we're really excited about is working with talented groups of graduate students to build out research in these areas.
0: Well, great. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights with us today. We very much appreciate it.
1: It's been my pleasure, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Once again, the book is Diversity, Violence, and Recognition, How Recognizing Ethnic Identity Promotes Peace by Elizabeth King and Cyrus Sammy.